Hi, my name is Molly and I love all things ghoulish, macabre, spooky and paranormal. If you do too, then you'll love to tune in and listen to me bringing you haunted tales from every county in the United Kingdom and eventually beyond. Each week, I pick a county randomly from my ghost haunted box and bring to you a ghostly tale from that particular county. This week we have been transported to the diverse county of Tyne and Weir. So sit or lie back and let's get ghoulish. Tyne and Weir is a ceremonial county in North East England. It borders Northumberland to the north and County Durham to the south and the largest settlement in the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Based on recent growth rates, they estimate the current 2023 population of Tyne and Weir to be 1,129,000. Angel of the North Tyne and Weir is home to the iconic Angel of the North, a massive sculpture with a wingspan as wide as a Boeing 757. Innovation Hub. The region has a rich industrial history and played a key role in the Industrial Revolution, contributing to innovations like the steam engine. Stadium Rivalry. The football stadiums of Newcastle United and Sunderland AFC are just 12 miles apart making it one of the fiercest rivalries in English football. Glass Centre. Sunderland is known for its National Glass Centre, celebrating the city's glass-making heritage and featuring stunning glass art. Great North Run. The Great North Run, one of the world's largest half-marathons, takes place annually in Newcastle, attracting thousands of participants. Quayside Seaside. Newcastle's Quayside hosts a Quayside Seaside during the summer, bringing a beach atmosphere to the city with sand, deck chairs and ice cream. Victoria Tunnel. Underneath Newcastle runs the Victoria Tunnel, originally built to transport coal, but later used as a wartime air raid shelter. Marsden Rock. South Shields boasts Marsden Rock, a limestone sea stack with a rich bird population, including puffins. Jarrow Crusade. In 1936, unemployed men from Jarrow marched to London in the Jarrow Crusade to protest against unemployment and poverty. Lobster Parade. The annual Houghton Feast in Houghtonley Spring features a quirky lobster parade where locals dress up as lobsters. Tunnel Vision. The Tyne Tunnel, opened in 1967, was one of the first purpose-built road tunnels in the UK, connecting Newcastle and Jarrow. Grangertown. Newcastle's Grangertown is a historic area with classical architecture, 
and was designed in the early 19th century by renowned architect Richard Granger. Gosforth Park Nature Reserve A surprising oasis in the city, this nature reserve in Newcastle provides a peaceful escape with diverse flora and fauna. Old Low Light The Old Low Light in North Shields was originally a lighthouse and is now a maritime heritage centre. Wylam Brewery Founded in 2000, Wylam Brewery in Newcastle produces a variety of craft beers and operates in the beautiful surroundings of Exhibition Park. Beedie's World Jarrow is home to Beedie's World, a museum dedicated to the life and times of the venerable Beedie, an Anglo-Saxon monk. Newcastle Castle The Newcastle Castle, dating back to the 12th century, offers panoramic views of the city and the River Tyne. Geordie Dialect The people of Tyne and Ware are often referred to as Geordies and their distinctive Geordie dialect is filled with unique phrases. Some of these unique phrases are, and excuse my accent because I'm southern, Howay, a versatile term often used to encourage or express impatience. Howay man, let's get going. Canny, meaning good or nice. That's a canny cup of tea you've made. Pet a term of endearment similar to mate or friend. All right, pet, how's it going? Toon, referring to Newcastle, especially its city centre. Let's head into the Toon for a night out. Bairn, a child or baby. The Bairn's asleep now. Gan canny, advising someone to be careful or take it easy. Gan canny with that hot tea. Divent means don't. So divent worry about that, it'll be fine. Hinny, another term of endearment often used for a woman or a girl. Thanks, Hinny, you're a star. Alreet, a casual way to ask someone how they are. Hey, Alreet, long time no see. Raji, referring to someone who is angry or agitated. He went proper Raji when he heard the news. Tynmouth Priory, or Tynemouth Priory, sorry, and, and castle overlooking the North Sea have a rich history dating back to the 7th century. Graffiti Tunnel. The Ousburn Valley in Newcastle is home to the Graffiti Tunnel where artists regularly update the walls with vibrant street art. Before I continue, listener discretion advised. This episode contains explicit content. Listener discretion is advised for a mature audience. Thank you. In this week's episode, we're going to explore some of the terrifying ghost stories and paranormal phenomena associated with Newcastle. A truly terrible treat for a dark and stormy winter's night as Storm Gerrit currently batters most of the UK. 
The stories are drawn from old books, documents, and John Sykes' historical register of remarkable events housed in the Tyne and Ware archives and museums, and Newcastle Library. Many of the stories feature in the hidden Newcastle app, developed by Tyne and Ware archives and museums and anyone limited. Many thanks to all these resources and also to Chronicle Live as well as the Paranormal Database. These unlucky tales date back hundreds of years and tell of a hidden history for the North East in which many a Geordie met with a gruesome end. The murder of the Black Bull Landlady it has been noted on several occasions that the mood of a young man named Spark became decidedly darker after he'd had a drink. Tragically, nothing was done about it. On November the 24th, 1786, he had been drinking with his mother in the upstairs rooms of the Black Bull Ale House in the Flesh Market, where she was a landlady. On coming downstairs, he told a maidservant he was going to kill the cat, which he promptly did, before locking the girl out of the premises. She returned next morning and was confronted by Spark, who said that he had been up all night fighting with the Dark One dressed in his mother's clothes and had killed him. The girl appeared unconcerned, recognising yet another odd episode in his behaviour but on searching for the landlady who was unusually late, she discovered her battered and bloodied body upstairs. Spark was arrested on a charge of murder and committed to Morpeth Ghoul. However, the Assizes took his mental health into consideration, along with his temporary alcohol-induced insanity, and acquitted him in August 1787. The Visitation of a Great Dragon A contemporary observation tells us that on St Nicholas's Eve, which is September the 5th, in 1275, great earthquakes were felt in Newcastle, with dreadful thunder and lightning, with a blazing star and a comet in the appearance of a great dragon which terrified the people. It is entirely plausible there was a comet in the sky at this time, a phenomenon that wasn't well understood, so is attributed to religious or spiritual actions. A 1275 Scottish text, the Chronicle of Melrose, notes that two comets appeared before the rising of the sun in the month of August. Certainly, with their tales of gas and dust, comets make some of the most stunning spectacles in the night sky. An earthquake on September the 11th, 1275, damaged Glastonbury Abbey in south-west England, and it's said that the tremor was felt in London and almost every other part of England, with churches thrown down. Perhaps the Newcastle one a few days earlier, was an indication of pressure building. The hunt for bogus witchfinders in Newcastle. Persecution of alleged witches reached its height in the mid-17th century. 
those accused were arrested and examined to locate marks on their bodies. It was Lieutenant Hobson's job to oversee the witchfinder's activities in the old guild hall. You know how it goes with these witchfinders. Their victims are denounced by their neighbours, usually the old, the sick and the lame. It's their very age and helplessness that condemns them. For my part, I was obliged to watch, mute witness to cruelty and terror, all sanctioned by the law. Amongst the sad parade of frightened and bewildered women, I recognised one of the accused, a former nurse who tended my men during the great siege, scarce six years earlier. This was no witch. Her crime was to use herbal remedies and harmless potions to cure the sick. When she was dragged whimpering to the chair, I paid close attention to this supposed witch finder at work. His tool was a normal cobbler's awl, used to search for the mark, and of course she did not bleed. As he stood, the satisfied smirk of a man who just earned another twenty shillings in blood money, I could take no more. I felled his grinning gauler with a single blow and seized the instrument from his hand. The manner of his squirming convinced me, and I was right. The instrument was a fake. The point so seemingly sharp was as blunt as a doorpost and retracted into the handle. I damned him for the vile fraudster and swore I'd drive him and his cohort from the town by the lash, if necessary. The gruesome plea of Mrs Moffat. A sailor named Wilkinson from Lynn in Norfolk found himself in dire straits in 1800's Newcastle and took to begging around Pilgrim Street. Having knocked on the door of Mrs Moffat, who looked after horses, he was presented with bread and cheese and small beer, a low-alcohol drink often given to servants and children. She then produced a hatchet and told Wilkinson she had suffered for some time with her fingers and would it be so kind as to cut them off? Imagine the reaction. She persisted for some time with her bizarre request, laying her hands flat on the table until he eventually gave in and brought the hatchet down heavily on her outstretched hands. Three fingers of one hand and two on the other were severed and others badly injured. Mrs Moffat was sent to hospital and Wilkinson eventually to the House of Correction in Carlisle Square. It's recorded that she was later subject to fits of insanity. Ghost of Martha Wilson, the Quayside Silky. In the early 19th century, a heartbroken widow named Martha Wilson hanged herself in her lodgings. As a suicide, she was denied a proper burial and her body was later found buried at a crossroads with a stake driven through her heart. Her ghost was said to haunt the dark alleys by the quayside near where she lived at the Broad Char. It was dead of winter, middle of January perhaps, and a cold east wind was funnelling up the river. 
Now I knew the quayside, knew all of its winds and chairs. But that night, near ten it might be, the place was quiet. I am soulful, none mourns me, and I passed unnoticed in quiet anguish. None sought to reason why, only the law's indifference. I took my own life, you see, denied sacred burial, a crude state thrust through my tortured heart. So it has become my fate to walk these barren streets where I lived the short space of my unhappy life and was finally driven to end it. In that opaque dark one night, a man followed me, a keelman, I judged. There were many. In the cold air he walked, as I walked, till I turned into Trinity Cher. Taken aback, he followed suit and stood there all uncertain. I turned and raised my pale hand, as though to beckon him forward, and lifted the veil that he might see what had become of me. But he would see nothing, no features, merely emptiness. In that instant, he was gripped by terror, fled like the hounds of hell were at his heels. But I must continue walking in the darkness. I can see no light. The Theatre Royal Tragedy of 1823 The popular Theatre Royal performance of Tom and Jerry, also known as Life in London, an operatic extravaganza in three acts, had barely begun on February the 19th, 1823, when gas escaping from a pipe ignited in the auditorium. The fire was extinguished almost immediately, but the audience panicked and instinctively rushed for the stairs to escape. A cashier had managed to open one barrier, but was thrown down the stairs by the sheer weight and pressure of screaming people before he could open the other. Some fell and were trampled to death, while others were crushed and suffocated. In total, seven people lost their lives in this tragedy, and many more suffered severe injuries. The dead were sadly mainly young people. Isabella Parkinson, aged 11, Mary Johnson, who was 16, Dorothy Heaton, who was 17, and Thomas Handyside, who was 20. Mary Robson tragically died in the arms of her husband Riddle, himself badly injured. The Theatre Royal was at that time situated on Mosley Street. Black Jackie Johnson. Late Georgian inhabitants of Newcastle frequently sought the advice of Black Jackie Johnson who lived on Dogbank. It was said he owned a copy of the great magician Cornelius Agrippa's Manual to the Dark Arts. He was feared by locals. Even criminals were wary of his black magic. Now some might scoff and some might sneer. But when they're in dire need, it's Jackie they come to. I've the eye, you see. Not the eyes that glaze out upon the street and see little, but the inner eyes which see all. The mind is like a foreign land, unmapped territory. 
whose distant currents and eddies we only dimly perceive. I'd have my client under in seconds, almost before they knew, delving like a surgeon or an artist to give life to the colours of the mind. Now to business. Let's say a gentleman needs to call upon a lady, but her family is not too keen. Would it not help his path to courtship if he was invisible? Well, first you find a black cat. Make sure it doesn't have a single white hair on its body. On a Sunday, during the time of divine service, boil the cat for three hours. Cut out the cat's heart and dry it in an oven. One that's never been used before, till it's reduced to a fine powder. Conceal this powder in a churchyard and visit it each night at precisely midnight for seven consecutive nights. On the seventh, you will encounter another who will walk with you to the churchyard gate. You must give half the powder to him as soon as you arrive. The rest of the powder is yours and forever after, whenever you carry it, you will remain invisible. Trust me never fails. The unwrapping of an Egyptian mummy. People were fascinated by Egyptology in the mid-19th century, so the opening of a sarcophagus at the Literary and Philosophical Society on Westgate Road was a huge coup for the city. The casket contained the mummified remains of a female, which had been obtained by John Bowes Wright in Paris, where it had been brought from Egypt by Baron Denton. Three surgeons opened the well-preserved sycamore case on March the 8th, 1830. It took two hours to unwind the nankeen cloth, which is pale yellow cotton, weighing 50 pounds 6 ounces, 23 kilos, protecting the body which was found to be in a remarkably perfect state. Her hair was long and reddish, but turning grey in places. Her teeth were white and had been well cared for, while the skin was sepia brown in colour. The naked mummy was displayed in a glass case in the gallery room of the Lit and Phil Library. Coffin Raider in 1858, the city was scandalised by revelations that the Beadle of All Saints, otherwise a bastion of Victorian respectability, had been recycling lead from coffins to line his own pockets. This transgression earned him 18 months of hard labour. Some would say his earthbound spirit still wanders the churchyard in darkness in penance for his earthly betrayal of trust. I'm Jack, I am, or was, the beadle here. What's a beadle, you ask? Well, the beadle is a sort of parish constable. My job was to keep things in order, as you might say. Keep an eye on church and churchyard. Put some stick about, clear undesirables and beggars from church property. I mightn't rank with the clergy, but I was respectability itself. The iron railings around All Saints Churchyard weren't intended purely for decoration. 
These and many like them were erected to deter body snatchers. Surgeons were apt to ask few questions, if any, and ten guineas is a significant incentive. And that was part of my job, you see, to protect the honest dead from the dishonest living. I never stooped that low, but respectability don't come that cheap, and for all my office looked, it was badly paid. Plain fact was I was as poor as the church mice, and me with a wife and family to keep. I watched them coming in their hardwood caskets, garnished with brass, lead lined for comfort in eternity. Any one of these would have cost more than my annual salary. Folk in the houses nearby came to believe the churchyard was haunted. Mysterious lights glimpsed at night, kept the curious away, and that suited me fine. Course, it were my lamp they were seeing. It was so easy just to strip out some of the lead lining every time and sell it on. The scrap merchants asked no questions and the guineas mounted. I moved my family to better lodgings, added a fine gold hunter and chain to my wardrobe, bought new furnishings, and so, by my greed, was brought low. My deceit was uncovered, my crimes were laid bare, I was paraded through the courts as a common criminal, rubbing shoulders with those I despised, my family thrown out and into the workhouse. All was ignominy and shame. Pause then as you pass by, for you might catch a glimpse of my ghost, doomed to wonder in eternal penance. The two deaths of Robert Matfin. It was only by sheer chance that Robert Matfin reached the age of 77. As a schoolboy in St John's Charity School, he was pronounced dead and laid in a coffin. Pupils at the school gathered to sing at his funeral, but young Robert, aroused from his lethargy by the sweet voices, turned on his side to listen. The coffin bearers felt the movement and alerted the clergyman, who ordered the lid to be unscrewed. Robert was taken to an aunt's house at Low Friar Street, wrapped in a blanket, given some invigorating cordial, put to bed and recovered from whatever had ailed him. In later life he became a keelman, but in old age he was banished from the keelman's hospital where he lived with other retired and needy ship workers due to his irregular conduct. He was taken in by All Saints Poorhouse when he died on May the 28th, 1820. The self-mutilation of Susanna Nicholson. What prompted a young washerwoman to harm herself in a horrendous fashion we'll never know. We can only surmise. Susanna Nicholson was living in the narrow and extremely dirty back row behind Queen Street on the quayside when on October the 23rd, 1763, she took a small knife and sadly began to hack at her body. She cut off her nose, both ears and eyelids, most of her lips, 
part of her breasts and sliced into her throat before stabbing herself in the side. She survived these gruesome injuries until the following day. A coroner's verdict was one of lunacy. News of Susanna's horrific death was published in a Paris newspaper from where the story spread across Europe, causing horror and commiseration throughout. Digging graves to the bitter end. The sexton of St Andrew's Church in Gallowgate, Newcastle's oldest church, had been preparing for a burial in the churchyard on June the 24th, 1765, when he was found dead at the bottom of the grave he had been digging. Now, here are several of my favourite submissions plucked from the paranormal database concerning Tyne and Weir. This is about a former vigor, vicar, Bolden Colliery in Headworth Church. Haunting manifestation, the time was around March 1896. Churchgoers reported being able to see a figure standing at the windows of this building. The ghost was said to resemble a former vicar and had regularly returned for over a month. Dart throwing at the East Bolden Black Bull Public House, Poltergeist, October 2018. In an interview with local press, manager Kelly Headley said chairs had been moved unaided. Darts were known to be thrown by an unseen hand and glasses would slide and smash. Ghostly children and a sad cavalier are reputed to haunt the site. Charlie Gordon, Gateshead Albion Inn, Bill Key. A haunting manifestation and it was in the 20th century. Charlie enjoyed the hospitality of this public house that he returned to it two years after dying. Seen dressed in a grey suit by the new landlady, she had no idea who he was until she described him to a couple of living regulars. Bump, Gateshead Dead Man's Arch, former site of Bensham Station, a haunting manifestation, on the 1st of January, reoccurring at midnight. A local piece of folklore says a train driver sadly took his life under the arch. If one walks along the footpath at midnight on New Year's Day, you can feel the bump of a body against your own. Dead Alien, Gateshead, Headley Street and St Cuthbert's Church. A UFO, Spring 1940. Five-year-old Robert Hall, together with other children, encountered several strange figures shortly after observing an egg-shaped flying object. One of the figures resembled a short Bigfoot, while another had a skeletal body and bat wings. After taking a sample of Robert's blood, the figures left. The following day, a short, grey-like alien appeared to Robert. The boy's screams brought his uncle to the scene, who killed the alien with a shovel. A local story says the alien's body is buried in a nearby churchyard or concealed within a secret room. Cat's Eyes In Houghtonless Spring, Seven Sisters Round Barrow, 
Type ABC on the 17th of December 2019 at 9 o'clock at night. While walking along the track passing close to Seven Sisters, a witness spotted cat's eyes reflected in their torch beam. The witness turned off the light and when they turned it back on about a minute later, the torchlight reflected multiple pairs of eyes. The witness said the eyes were between knee and waist height and moved very fast. Venerable Beedy's Chair, Jarrow St Paul's Church, type legend and it's still present. Newlywed brides who sit in this famous chair soon fall pregnant, according to local legend. Another version of the legend says that anyone to sit on the chair is granted three wishes. And lastly, Joseph the Monk, Newcastle upon Time, formal adultery Vita nightclub, which is now closed, which is a haunting manifestation, late 20th century. A lover of dance when he lived, Joseph Shade would appear to have been kick-started when a nightclub opened near his grave. The tall monk, dressed in his robes, was seen dancing in the club several times by both staff and customers. As we wrap up our paranormal journey today, let's reflect on the fascinating and sometimes mystifying stories we've encountered from the enigmatic realm of extraterrestrial encounters to the whimsical tales of dancing monks. Our exploration into the unknown has been both captivating and thought-provoking. In sharing these stories, let's extend a moment of empathy and compassion to those who have experienced the unexplainable and for those sadly tormented in life and the spirits who remain so. Whether it's the challenges faced by individuals or the wonder sparked by encounters beyond our understanding, there's a shared humanity in these narratives. So, as we conclude, let's remain open to the mysteries that surround us, the paranormal, with its blend of uncertainty and awe, invites us to embrace the inexplicable with kindness and curiosity. Thank you for joining me on this intriguing journey and may the wonders of the unknown continue to spark your imagination. Before I go, let's see where the Ghost Haunted Box has chosen for us to investigate next. And it is Bristol. So join me next week on Friday, the 5th of January, to find out what I've discovered about the county of Bristol. You can follow me on Instagram by searching Ghost Haunted with Molly or my username, which is Hauntologist1. If you value my efforts and wish to show your support, you can consider making a kind donation. Both links found in my Spotify description box. Your support is greatly appreciated. I want to wish you all a very happy new year, full of peace, 
and love and I will see you on the other side. Until next week or next year, I should say, stay curious, stay cautious and never let your guard down. For the realm of the unknown is always closer than we think.